Hello and welcome to today's panel discussion on brain banking, progress, challenges and opportunities, brought to you by NeuroCentral in collaboration with the Drake Foundation. To introduce myself, I'm Lauren Pulling, editor of NeuroCentral, and I'll be your host for today's event. So I'm delighted to be joined today by a panel of experts who have each had a different role in the brain banking process. Joining me today are Janice Holton and Tamas Revers, both from the UCL Institute of Neurology and the Queen Square Brain Bank, Rosa Sancho from Alzheimer's Research UK, and James Pickett from Alzheimer's Society. In this webinar, our panel will discuss a number of questions addressing key progress points, challenges, and future opportunities in brain banking, and we'll also take questions from you, the audience, for our panel to discuss. So we invite you to submit any questions you may have for our panelists throughout the webinar using the Q&A tool in the right-hand side of the console. We'll then pose your questions to the panel after the main discussion. So before we get into the discussion, welcome to our panelists who will now introduce themselves and tell us some more about their roles in the brain banking process. So Janice, let's go over to you first. Hello, my name is Janice Holton. I'm a consultant neuropathologist and professor in neuropathology at the University College London Institute of Neurology. I've been involved in brain banking for around 15 years as a neuropathologist at the Queen Square Brain Bank, and I've been director of neuropathology for the last two and a half years. The Queen Square Brain Bank has a special interest in neurodegenerative diseases, particularly in movement disorders and in some types of dementia. We work closely with our clinical neurology colleagues at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery at Queen Square London. My role involves working with a team of dedicated people who are responsible for recruiting brain donors, managing the brain donation process, and the technical aspects of processing brain to produce material for diagnosis and research. As a neuropathologist, I have the important role of ensuring that there is a careful diagnosis for all of the cases submitted to the brain bank so that well-characterized material is available to researchers. I also supervise a team of researchers at the Brain Bank. Their research work is based around the use of donated tissue. The tissue from our Brain Bank is made widely available both within our own institution and also to other researchers around the world. Great, thank you, Janice. And I think we're next handing over to Tamas. Thank you. Um, my name is Thomas Rivas, and I'm a professor of emeritus in neuropathology at the UCL Institute of Neurology. Between 2001 and 2013, when I retired, I had been the neuropathologist director of the Queen Square Brain Bank. Although I'm not involved directly in brain banking anymore, I continue to lead a research group and continue to carry out research in movement disorders and dementias using the collection of the Queen Square Brain Bank and also other UK and European and US uh, brain banks. Thank you. Great, thank you. And Rosa, over to you. Thank you. I'm Rosa Sancho. I'm Head of Research at Alzheimer's Research UK. Alzheimer's Research UK is um, a research funder solely dedicated to funding dementia research. 
from understanding disease mechanisms to diagnosis, um, risk reduction, and also developing treatments. As, as such, we've, we've funded a number of projects that util, utilize donated brain, mainly to better understand the mechanisms that drive uh, dementia, but also to understand the impact that new treatments may have had on, on brain pathology. But more significantly, we support a, a network of brain banks across the UK called Brains for Dementia Research, which is co-funded with the Alzheimer's Society. Great, thank you. And I think that takes us nicely on to James. Yeah, good afternoon. Good morning to everybody. My name's James Pickett. I'm the Head of Research at the Alzheimer's Society. Um, we're a large care and research charity based here in the UK. And I have a remit of funding research across care, cure, cause, and prevention of, of research. Um, we fund a large amount of research that uses brain tissue, and I'm particularly interested in how it can be used to um, supplement and, and validate kind of preclinical research. And as Rosa mentioned, um, probably more actively, we're involved in the Brains for Dementia Research Program, which signs up um, participants prospectively to donate their brains for uh, dementia research once they finish with them and collecting um, clinical information about, about them, why they're alive, and having that available for a wide variety of research uh, uses alongside the neuropathology tissue. Great. Thank you very much, everyone. So I think um, we can now go on to our first topic, which is the general current landscape and research need for brain banking. Um, so our first um, point, I guess, Janice, we'll start off with you. Could you kick us off with a brief introduction to the process of brain banking and why brain banks are so important for research? Yes, thank you. So the process of, um, for collecting brains starts with discussions with patients, often in conjunction with their families and carers, about the importance of brain donation and whether this is something that they may wish to consider. After they've had the opportunity to think about, about this and to read our patient information sheet and ask any further questions, a patient may decide to register with a brain bank as a potential donor. They will then be invited to complete, complete a consent to tissue donation form to register as a donor. The brain bank that an individual chooses will usually depend upon their clinical diagnosis because most brain banks in the UK have specialist areas of interest. Many of the patients who register with our own brain bank have been seen in clinics at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery at Queen's Square as we work very closely with the clinicians based at that hospital. After a donor has passed away, the brain bank staff will make arrangements for the brain donation to take place at a local hospital and for the brain to be transferred to the brain bank. The brain bank staff work very sensitively with the next of kin at all times to guide and support them through the process, aiming to make it as smooth as possible and to reduce any associated stress. All of the procedures that we work to have been approved by an ethical committee and there are strict regulations by law to governing the storage of tissues that are used for research. So all of the brain banks in the UK will work within this ethical and legal framework. Collecting Great, brain tissue you. in, in brain banks is very important as, as it provides a unique resource for researchers. 
And brain banks in the UK and across the world collect tissues from many different types of neurological disease and also from controlled uh, donors. So those are people who don't suffer from a neurological disease. Most of the diseases, we have a very limited understanding of their underlying causes. And many neurological diseases have a relentless progressive um, uh, course. And treatments that truly intervene or slow down and stop the disease process aren't available at the moment. So the purpose of brain banking is to provide high quality tissue to the research community to increase our understanding of the causes of brain diseases and what makes these diseases progress. This hopefully will ultimately provide information about how we might be able to prevent and treat diseases in the future. Thank you. Great, thank you. And so to follow on from that, what effects have brain banks had so far on our understanding of dementia? Um, I would like really here just to give a couple of uh, examples, um, but we have to know that several of the seminal discoveries which had advanced our understanding of the causes and pathogenic mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases in general and also other neurological diseases are based on research utilizing human brain tissue. Really just to mention historical facts. Uh, we should remember that the discovery by, for example, Alois Alzheimer or Frederick Levy in relation to Alzheimer's disease and um, Parkinson's disease, of course, were also made by using human tissue. But we, uh, going to more recent times, we, we, we can mention, for example, the identification of the amyloid beta peptide the abnormal aggregated form of which is now widely accepted to be central to the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease is um, one of the many examples um, of uh, discoveries uh, using uh, human brain tissue. More recent examples of research that utilized uh, brain tissue and resulted in significant discoveries include recognition, for example, of the TDP43 uh, protein, uh, which is the major component of inclusions, both in uh, a large group of frontotemporal lobal degenerations and also in motor neuron disease, uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Uh, closer to our uh, brain bank, uh, other examples include the recognition of uh, other cerebral amyloid diseases, such as familiar British dementia and familiar Danish dementia, which were again identified, their genetic cause and uh, uh, biochemical features uh, by examining uh, brain tissue. Um, I think we lost you for a second uh, there, Tamar, sorry. <laughs> yes, uh, can I just continue here? That, um, yeah. Um, brain banks has played an important role in, in the last few decades uh, in, uh, in a number of um, important prospective longitudinal studies as well. Uh, and examples, uh, the CFAS study in the UK or uh, the brain banking uh, dementia program supported by AR UK and the Artemis Society or the non- and Honolulu Asia aging studies in the USA, just to mention a few. In these studies, brain tissue is now available from representative uh, samples of cases uh, with detailed neuropathological data. 
Great, thank you, Tamas. And so um, to sort of look at brain banking over time, how has the rapid development of molecular technologies in recent years affected brain banking? Uh, this is a, a, an interesting and important point. Uh, most brain banks try to collect frozen tissue in addition to fixed tissue, and one of the reasons behind that is that you need frozen tissue for research using molecular techniques. So with the frozen tissue, we can extract DNA and RNA and proteins for analysis. Uh, many genetic studies that have been carried out around the world, often known as GWAS studies or genome-wide association studies, require large numbers of cases. But because there's some room for error in clinical diagnosis of, of patients, it's very important to have a big contribution from cases where there's a definite neuropathological diagnosis. And this is where the brain banks can come in and contribute uh, cases to these studies, which is a great advantage. And these studies have really improved enormously our understanding of the role of genetic risk in predisposing individuals to disease. Looking forward to the future, many brain banks will be hoping to provide detailed molecular information about their cases, along with the tissue, the clinical data, and the neuropathological data that goes with them. So this would be in addition to what we're currently providing and would give researchers access to genetic information and other data such as the whole transcriptome data, uh, providing information about which genes are active in diseased brains and allowing us to identify changes in cellular processes that lead to disease. So this is something which is going to develop very much, I think, in the next couple of years. Great, a lot of um, exciting times ahead then. Mm. And so I think now we're going to move on to the next part of the discussion based around costs and funding. So firstly, could you put a figure on the cost of banking one donated brain? Yes, I can. Um, it might be a bit of a surprise to people, I think. Uh, we've calculated that the cost of collecting, diagnosing, storing a brain for a period of, of six years, so curating the brain, if you like, all of that amounts to about £6,000 per brain. So this doesn't include the cost of any of the molecular um, processes that I, that I suggested that we might like to be carrying out in the future. This is the basic costs for collection, diagnosis, storage, and you know, keeping that brain safe and in good condition for, so that it's available for researchers. So you can see that for a large study, the, the uh, costs of this are quite significant. Mm. And this is, of course, a side that um, a lot of people might not know about. And so what's the sort of current landscape of funding for brain banks, um, particularly in the UK? James, I don't know if you want to take this one. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I think that brain banking here certainly in the UK, is really supported by a large number of different people that contribute to this, to the, to the brain banking, um, as an underpinning resource that really enables research. Um, and certainly here in the, here in the UK, um, we've got the investment of the charities. We have mm. underlying money that comes from the health, government health funders, such as the NHR and the Medical Research Council. But it still leaves a number of... Um, gaps in funding that need to be found, things like mortuary costs and other retrieval costs of brains, which uh, certainly in the UK we struggle to work out if they're research costs or should be part of, um, of, of routine care. 
Um, so regardless of that, I think that uh, we find solutions to these things and, and brain banking does continue in a, in, in a stable way, although it, it does really call on many sources to be able to fund a, a service that does need to be kind of available out of hours to receive donations um, at all times of the day and, uh, and weekends. Great, thank you. And so, Rosa, um, Alzheimer's Research UK does fund some brain banking projects. Can you tell us um, why funding brain banks is so important to ARUK and a little more about these projects that you're involved in? Yes, yeah, so um, the brain is the most inaccessible organ uh, while we're alive, so brain tissue, donated brain tissue, becomes uh, a hugely valuable tool dementia research and like Tam has explained it's been fundamental in um, some of our most basic understanding of how dementia progresses um, for example how um, misfolded proteins in our brain can spread across different regions that was initially seen in brain tissue um, in terms of brain banks we've been funding them together with the Alzheimer's Society since 2008 I believe um, at the time, the two, the two charities were receiving several queries from people who wanted to know how to de donate um, their brains. Um, and there was a gap there. We needed to improve the experience for these people and, and their relatives um, that wanted to do so. Um, and we also acknowledged the need to obtain an accurate diagnosis or a confirmation of the diagnosis. Um, which in these diseases happens um, post-mortem. So it was important for us to support a number of brain banks that would provide that national coverage and, and reach as many people as possible. At the time, there were already pockets of excellence around the country um, on dementia research and brain banking, which we thought would benefit from being linked up and, and supported. Um, so like James uh, mentioned be before, we support this network called Brains for Dementia Research, which apart from brain banking also combines clinical and lifestyle information from people who, who have consented to donate their brains. Um, they also um, provide blood samples. Um, so they're a deeply characterized cohort of people, which we as a charity think will enhance um, dementia research in the future. Apart from brain banking, we then fund discrete neuropathology projects, and that can be associated to brains for dementia research or not. So we fund projects that use tissue from the Queen Square Brain Bank, for example, because it's quite rich in um, samples of rare dementias, so a really important resource. Um, and we've also funded in the past um, neuropathology studies that look at the brains of people who have undergone uh, a new, um, a then new treatment, for example, um, which was an anti-amyloid immunotherapy. And it was important to see after death um, the effect that that treatment had had in the brain. And it, it allowed researchers to see, for example, the mechanisms by which amyloid could have been cleared, the explanation, the explanation behind um, side effects, and also the variability between uh, different people with dementia and how they reacted to that treatment. 
Thank you. And uh, James, could you tell us how Alzheimer's Society is involved in brain banking projects? I know you have some crossover with the work of ARUK as well. Yeah, I think some of the best examples we've kind of seen of, of the power of, uh, of some of the brain banking stuff we do is when it's combined with the information that is collected throughout life. So I think of examples that come from example from the CFAS study where um, knowledge of numbers of years of education and continued education and things can, can be combined with neuropathology. And um, what those studies really demonstrated was that higher education was, um, even if the people had a higher um, load of amyloid and tau in their brains, that at death they were protected from developing dementia. So really uh, illustrating cognitive reserve very strongly. Um, other studies we've been involved in, for example, taking patients that uh, with Lewy body dementia and experiencing different symptoms and, and looking at characterizing the, the brain pathology between people, for example, that had hallucinations and those that didn't and finding differences in proteins or on RNA expression that may actually underline the, the, uh, the basis of some of those symptoms. So. I think that's where some of the strength lies at, at the moment. And really, as we move forward, and as Janice was saying, getting more and more um, omic and other high throughput kind of information on these brains and being able to combine those multiple data sets um, is, is kind of the real opportunity for the future. Certainly. And so how do funders decide which brain banks or, or projects to fund? So in terms of projects, um, they're funded on the basis of an open competition. So funders um, like ours or the society will put calls out for, for applications. Uh, people submit applications and those are awarded on, based on scientific merit. So um, advisors will uh, recommend applications for funding on the basis of the quality of the work, the expertise of the applicants. Um, the strength of dementia research at that institution, um, value for money, etc. In terms of the brain banks that we currently support, uh, we've been supporting them since 2008. Um, there was already there a potential or existing expertise in dementia research and brain banking, and every few years they undergo um, a renewal process um, where um, we review the work they've been doing and, and potential for expanding or, or changing something for, for the future. I think just to add to that, I mean, we recognize that the brain banking is a highly specialist activity and requires a, a core of um, expertise, most notably neuropathology, but other disciplines as well. And then you also need a good geographical spread of, of brain banking across the country because obviously you're uh, taking these donations soon after death and kind of some of the practical considerations as well very much come in, in, into play there. So, um, so just some of the other reasons why you, you want a distributed network that really put, works and pulls together um, to have standardized protocols in the way that, that things are on and go about to allow kind of um, samples to be combined into larger studies. 
Great, thank you both. And so that brings us on to our next area of focus, which is public involvement and recruitment. Um, so Janice, when a brain is received at a brain bank, each one must first be given an official diagnosis. Why is this so important from a researcher's perspective? Uh, this is very important because each case requires a, a very careful neuropathological examination so that we can fully characterize the disease from which the patient suffered. We know that for many neurodegenerative diseases, the clinical diagnosis isn't 100% accurate. So confirmation of the diagnosis is essential. For example, in somebody who's thought to have had Alzheimer's disease, the, there's only around about 70 to 90% accuracy in that diagnosis. So the neuropathology will tell you exactly what the answer was, whether it was truly Alzheimer's disease or whether it may have been Alzheimer's with a combination of something else or maybe the, an alternative diagnosis. Many cases that we receive are from elderly, elderly individuals and we often find that there is evidence of more than one neurodegenerative process going on and also some contribution from vascular pathology. So again, if you think about Alzheimer's disease, uh, in the region of about half of Alzheimer's cases will have some additional pathology. And it's very important that we document all of this. So we fully characterize the case so that researchers can select cases in their, for their studies confident that they've got uh, a clear diagnosis. But also they can take into account those additional pathologies. And if it's important to completely exclude additional pathology, then they can select their cases according to those criteria. So the other uh, thing about the diagnosis is that sometimes families are very keen to have the feedback and to know what the final diagnosis was. And at Queen Square Brain Bank, we have trained staff who are able to provide that feedback if it's requested by the next of kin. Many families find this a very helpful and uh, it helps them to really understand the illness that their, their loved one suffered from and, and they, they do find this a reassuring part of the process of brain donation. Thank you. And um, James, perhaps you, like, you might want to add on a bit more there about why this diagnosis is so important for donor families. Yes, I think that, um, I mean, donor families really appreciate the, the, the need for this diagnosis um, and that, that provides a lot of reassurance. Great, thank you. So I think we'll move on to the next discussion point there. Um, so in the brain banking process, um, how long can one donation be used and for how many projects? Um, Tamas, perhaps you could take this one. Um, we have experience in the Queen's Square Brain Bank uh, with cases which were donated up to 30 years ago. And some of these old cases still come uh, to research. Uh, um, the, the vast majority of the cases participate or has participated in several major research projects. Of course, there is a limitation to the numbers because uh, uh, researchers often use in particular diseases uh, particular parts of the brain. For example, in Parkinson's disease, the midbrain bad substantia nigris, which is uh, uh, one of the major structures which is affected by disease, uh, requesting from the same region, therefore, a case uh, 
um, very quickly uh, used. And this just underlines a point which we shall discuss later that uh, we have to maintain the connections in order to, to provide um, uh, tissue to researchers. Um, and also, um, um, the long-term collection allows uh, to include several cases in, 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 a, um, in a major research project, which is very important sometimes that a uh, large number of cases are involved in a, uh, with a single disease are involved in a single project. So long-term thinking um, in, the, uh, in brain banking is very important uh, in, in this aspect as well. That's very interesting. Thank you. And so a lack of um, healthy control brains is often cited as a problem in brain banking. Why are these samples so essential and how can donations from healthy donors be encouraged? Uh, I could continue with this. Um, um, yes, please just do. really to say that in the UK there are no dedicated brain banks which collect control tissue and provide uh, uh, control tissue for research, which underpins the importance of uh, uh, collecting control material. Of course, this is important for several reasons. Uh, researchers wants, want to compare brains with disease to age-matched controls, and not only uh, age-matched, but sometimes even matched for uh, genetic background. Um, Normal control cases are used also for, for example, for gene expression and protein expression studies to understand uh, uh, major functions within the brain, and uh, for this as well, uh, normal control cases are required. Um, for every brain bank, the demand for control material is significant, and it is sometimes difficult to meet the requirements. Um, we could um, all those who are involved in brain banking could encourage uh, uh, donation of, uh, of uh, uh, control cases. In this uh, aspect, public engagement is very important. Uh, um, we have to make uh, the brain collection programs known, widely known. Um, uh, it is important to publicize brain banking activities and its impact on research. Um, it's an, also, uh, an important aspect also that uh, those who wish to become a control donor, uh, they should let their families know about their intent. Great, thank you, Tamas. And I think that will be a topic that we'll probably touch, touch on again later in the discussion. Um, and so, Janice, what are the reasons that a brain donation might be rejected, and how is this sensitive issue dealt with? This is a very important point, and we do have to handle this with as much sensitivity as possible. Our patient information sheet, which is given to families and donors right at the beginning of the process when they're considering signing up, does make them aware of this poss possibility right from the outset. Um, so we hope that if we do have to turn down a donation for any reason, that the, um, the family of the donor might have been at least in some way prepared for this possibility. 
it's always regrettable and we and we always do our best to to facilitate donations but there are sometimes reasons why we're unable to take a, a donation this might relate to how the person has died because if there's been for instance prolonged hypoxia then that would cause damage to the to the brain which would mean that it's not very suitable for di for um for research uh, projects and also there are time constraints so you know it it is necessary to try to collect brains as soon as possible after the donor has passed away and so prolonged delays between uh, the death and the ability to collect the brain can sometimes mean that it, it's really not possible to go ahead Sometimes the donor may have suffered from an additional disease that might mean that a donation is not suitable. And occasionally, um, if a death has been referred to the coroner, it may not always be feasible or possible to arrange a donation um, following that event. We do work very hard with coroners to try to prevent that from um, from stepping in the way and stopping a brain donation, but sometimes it, it just it's just not possible for, for everything to fall into place. So as I say, we, we do try to facilitate donations where as often as possible because we know how much families have invested in, in, in this and they really do want this outcome. But occasionally it's just it's just not possible to go ahead. Great. And so um, why are brains from individuals who have been involved in longitudinal cohort studies so valuable for research purposes? And how can researchers incorporate brain banking into such study protocols? Yes, I think James touched upon this earlier on. Um, mm. These cases are very valuable to researchers because it means that they can assess the neuropathological findings in the light of the detailed clinical information that's been collected um, during the course of the project that the patient has been involved with. So this means that they, uh, it's possible to compare the neuropathological findings with, for instance, uh, not just the clinical data, but also imaging studies that have been performed in life and uh, also to make assessments of the pathology in the context of blood tests results during life and sometimes um, also tests on cerebrospinal fluid. So, for, for instance, a biomarker might have been looked for in blood or in, in cerebrospinal fluid, and then we can then uh, relate that to the findings in the brain. In the case of clinical trials for new drugs, uh, again, Rosa um, uh, alluded to this earlier on. It's very important to establish the, the clinical diagnosis uh, in the case at the end because it's, it's important to find that that was correct because one reason why a, a drug may have failed is because, in fact, the, the patient had the wrong clinical diagnosis and could perhaps have been included in the study uh, inappropriately. It's also important to examine the brain because this will permit researchers to determine whether the treatment has had any influence on the pathological changes in the brain. So this would be particularly important where treatments are aimed at either um, removing a protein such as amyloid beta or tau in Alzheimer's disease um, and to see whether or not there has been any effect on the accumulation of those abnormal proteins in the brain. In terms of um, how can researchers incorporate brain banking into their study protocols, I think the thing is that they need to consider this really at the outset of the study. Um, very often, 
it's not part of the study protocol to, to end with a brain donation and neuropathological examination. And I think that it's very important that researchers planning cohort studies and clinical trials should think about this right from the start and try to plan funding for brain donation into their protocols. Uh, as we've discussed, brain banking is an expensive undertaking and therefore the costs do need to be uh, factored in right from the start. And it's important that the funding bodies who are funding uh, in investigations, including clinical trials, recognize this need and are prepared to provide financial support. I mean, one issue that we have um, come across is that because uh, if, if a, a trial is funded for a specific period of time, of course, brain donation may occur after that. And so it's, it's very difficult then for funders to um, understand that, that although the brain donation may occur later, the funding needs to be included for that when it does, when it does happen. And just to follow on from that, do you think it's likely that we'll see that in the new, near future, this funding included for studies for brain banking at the end when the study is over? I very much hope so. I think people are becoming much more aware of this now, um, and perhaps um, because of, of the trials as, that Rosa told us about in, in Alzheimer's disease, where it was possible by examining the brains of patients after the trial to find out uh, a little bit about why they had suffered side effects and what effect the treatment had had. Uh, I, th I think that people are very much more aware of it now, but it's still really a matter of getting uh, the funding on board for this and the planning in place. Great, thank you. And so uh, sticking sort of on the same vein of conversation there, is there a role for clinicians who are not involved in ongoing research projects in engaging with brain banking? Yes, I think there is. I think clinicians do have a role, even if they're not directly involved in brain banking. First of all, they can provide information to patients and their, and their families. Um, so to support them as they think about uh, whether or not they wish to engage with brain donation and become a donor. So a positive support from, uh, from clinicians can be very helpful at, at that time. They can also support families and carers after a donation has taken place uh, because many, very often the family will, would like to be able to talk to a clinician with whom they were familiar during the life of the patient, and they would find that reassuring to discuss the diagnosis with, the, with that clinician. Uh, so, and helping to explain and, uh, to the families what the diagnosis means, that can be very important. Another important role, I think, for clinicians is that they can make clinical data available to the brain bank. Uh, for instance, we always try to collect as much clinical data about our donations as possible. So we, we collect notes from the, the general practitioner so that we can assess, we can include that clinical data with the case so that we, we try to create as full a picture as possible. And it may be that other clinicians in addition to the general practitioner can help with that process by allowing access to, to their information and allowing us to keep that as part of our records. Great, thank you, Janice. And so I think that all brings us nicely on to our sort of final main discussion area. Um, so this is looking to the future of brain banking. So first, um, we're going to discuss what are the biggest challenges remaining in brain banking, uh, whether this is in recruitment, funding, maintenance, public awareness, um, and how can these be addressed 
So James, I wonder if you'd like to start us off here. Yeah, I, I think I'll just highlight two issues really. I think um, a challenge and an opportunity. And I think I think that funding will remain a real challenge for this. Um, this really being an underpinning activity and research funders needing to then fund the research on top of it and actually really championing the value of the, the high value collection of, of brain tissue is something that's going to remain it, it's going to remain a, a difficult challenge and one that we have to continue with i think there's the real opportunity that i see for the future is um the opportunity that exists in many of the cohorts now that have been set up uh for 2030 or even since birth kind of thing that are now reaching an age where we're beginning to study them more for neurodegenerative diseases. Certainly in the UK, we now have a, uh, an initiative called the Dementias Platform UK, which is taking many cohorts that were set up many years ago to look at cardiovascular risk. And now these individuals with almost 30 years of data collection are being kind of considered for how lifestyle factors affect their, their dementia risk. And going on, I think there's an enormous opportunity there to offer brain banking to a significant number of these individuals. Um, but, but it also has the potential, I think, to overwhelm the current systems and capaci capacity that we have for brain banking. So it's, um, are we able to evolve uh, methods whereby uh, brain banks can handle a lot more tissue um, and provide some perhaps basic characterization of, of, of samples coming in for research in kind of in very large numbers so that uh, for example we, we're, we're able to kind of do brain banking studies with similar n numbers to what we used to in some of the genetic studies for instance thanks james and rosa i don't know if you want to add in there as well yeah so i completely agree with what james said um i would also add that at least in the UK, we've seen a, a huge and welcome increase in dementia research funding. So the Dementia's Platform UK was launched, as well as the Dementia Research Institute. And it's important for us to ensure that brain banks are recognized as an important resource that can underpin a lot of this ongoing research within these new initiatives to ensure that they are coordinated um, and they, that brain banking is part of it. I would also mention what um, I think Janice mentioned before is the, the amount of data that we might be dealing with. So as people that donate their brains are increasingly well phenotyped during life because they've been part of a research cohort or because they have extensive um, clinical data available, uh, genetics data, how do we ensure that all of these data comes together and can be effectively used by researchers um, in their in their projects? Thanks, Rosa. And uh, Tamas or Janice, do you have anything more to add there on the sort of researcher side of things? Perhaps just to say that um, it's an it's an important aspect that uh, the brain banks have to maintain uh, the high-quality brain collection, their high-quality brain collections, uh, which enables them to provide appropriate normal and disease cases. And um, for this, it's important that uh, 
we can maintain and run our well-established recruitment programs, but also that we are flexible enough to to add new uh, new profiles to uh, to the uh, brain bank portfolio and ready to accept uh, larger case collections from uh, prospective studies. Of course, um, this raises the issue of funding uh, uh, for every brain bank. Uh, Janice already mentioned uh, the £6,000. And also when we discussed uh, that uh, some cases are um, uh, kept for several decades in the brain bank, uh, the long-term maintenance is rather costly as well. So funding is an essential and long-term funding is a very important uh, aspect, uh, uh, which I just wanted to mention. If I could just chip in there, I think this ongoing uh, funding over a period of years. Sorry, can I just chip in there? I think the long-term funding over a period of years is something which is of concern to all brain banks because, of course, a huge amount of work has gone into uh, making these collections and being able to see that this will be maintained into the future so that these collections um, remain available to other researchers in, in future years is, is a very important aspect. Thanks, everyone, for that. And so, again, looking forward, um, is there a move towards more coordinated approach to brain banking in the UK through networks, and what benefits could this bring? Um, so, I think in the UK it is well coordinated. The, the Brains for Dementia Research Network that we contribute to is part of a wider um, Medical Research Council brain bank network. Um, which allows brain banks to coordinate their work. The benefits of these are that there is shared expertise, shared resource. Um, there's the development and implementation of standardized procedures around brain donation and pathology. Um, there's also the legal and ethical framework that uh, Janice mentioned before that all brain banks uh, follow, uh, which also means that UK-based researchers can have access to tissue samples um, already with ethical ethics in place. Um, and I also think that by the, the Medical Research Council Brain Bank Network also has um, all information on the brain collection centrally stored in a, in a database that's searchable online, and this allows greater dissemination. Um, so these are just I think some of the advantages that there are in being part of, of a coordinated network. Yes, yeah, thanks, Rosa. I think that covers uh, very well how the networks are working at present. I think that uh, the support of being in a network for um, individuals in brain banking is, is really very helpful because um, men, you have to think about the fact that there are really relatively few brain banks around the country and in each brain bank there might only be one person with expertise, for example, in, in running the uh, brain donation program. So the ability of these people to come together and have training workshops and, and training days has, has been very supportive for, for staff who are doing a, a pretty rare but rather demanding job. So uh, support from their colleagues has been really a good part of this. 
Thank you very much both. And so, James, um, Alzheimer's Society, as well as Alzheimer's Research UK, is involved in the Brains for Dementia Research project. Could you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, I think we've introduced it um, several times throughout the call, but, but briefly, I think the unique elements of it is that it's a, a cohort that we've set up um, specifically with the, with the idea of brain donation at the end of it. Um, and so we now we have 3,000 individuals who have um, signed up to donate uh, to the idea of brain donation. Um, and they receive annual assessments and where they're willing to also provide us with bloods um, as well as access to other clinical information such as any routine scans and things like that that they've had. So, um, and, and that cohort has now been followed, some people, for nearly a decade now. Um, and we've, we've collected 500 brains uh, so far and we, we plan to follow uh, the cohort for the next 10 to 15 years. Um, in which is kind of from our estimations the time when the majority of the donations will be collected. Um, it's actually a cohort, although it's for dementia research, at the moment less than a third of the, the individuals in it actually have dementia and two-thirds of them are, are, are at the moment classed as healthy controls. Um, we expect some people will convert to dementia during their lifetime before brain donation happens. Um, and so we will have at, at kind of towards the end of this project approximately 3,000 well-characterized brains with other with data available of other kind of flood data or other things uh, available for uh, for research and really um, there's many easy ways there's um, by going through the brains for dementia research website um, you can uh, review the tissue that's currently available and make requests to use it in your research um, and many of the things such as uh, obtaining ethical approval to use the brain donation can be streamlined within that so it can actually be made very easy for people to work with human brain tissue even for people that haven't uh, used it before. Great, thank you very much James. It's an interesting project. And again, looking ahead um, for the Queen Square Brain Bank, Janice, how do you see the Brain Bank evolving in the next five to ten years? Yes, it's very important to keep looking ahead. And with that in mind, we've been developing a five-year strategy plan here, um, which will in involve continuing to collect the cases from the established areas of interest for our Brain Bank, which is movement disorders and dementia, with, um, the dementia cases, we have a specialist interest in familial dementias and frontotemporal dementias. So we're going to be focusing particularly on cohorts of patients who've been involved in the clinical studies at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery uh, because, as we've discussed, those are very valuable because we have the clinical, the imaging, and the, and the biochemical data from those patients and often genetic um, data as well. So in addition to that, we're also very keen to collect cases with known genetic mutations underlying their disease. Often these can provide key information about disease mechanisms, and although uh, individuals with, um, with a genetic basis for their disease are rare, understanding what, why that genetic um, defect causes the disease can help us to understand the much more common sporadic cases of diseases such as Parkinson's disease. 
We also want to expand the scope of our, uh, of our collection by establishing some small cohorts of rather rare neurological diseases. And here we, we have a, a number of diseases in mind, which we're, dis we're currently in discussions with the clinic clinicians locally to see how we can best achieve that. And by doing this, we'll, what we hope is that we'll achieve relatively small but niche cohorts of very rare diseases. Because if you have 10 cases of a particular disease scattered around the country, then that's one thing. But if you have 10 cases in the same place where they've all been subjected to very similar um, uh, neuropathological processes and workup and they have similar clinical data behind them, then that can be a very valuable resource. And these, of course, along with all of our other cases, will be made available to the research community in general. So we also want to... Um, encourage donation from individuals without neurological diseases for, as control cases. As we've discussed, these are very important and they can be, uh, we need, throughout the country, we need significant numbers of these cases. To that end, um, our colleagues at the hospital are studying cases who are in a, an MRC cohort of, of patients born in 1946. And of that group of, of people, uh, a number of them will be going, undergoing amyloid PET scans and other investigations in the Dementia Research Center. And we're inviting uh, those people to register as brain donors as well. So they will be an interesting and valuable resource for the future. So our aims here really are to continue to build a high-quality tissue resource with accompanying detailed clinical information, uh, which is made available to researchers around the world. We also want to enhance the value of the collection um, and, as I've mentioned, in including having these small niche collections. But also, um, we will be expanding our genetic screening of cases and uh, in, including other things such as transcriptome data with our cases in the future, or at least with a subset of our cases. And once we have these data, they will be made available with the cases for other researchers. So a valuable resource there. Thank you very much. And so that brings us to the end of our main discussion. Um, our panelists will now take questions from the audience. I think we've got time for one or two questions there. If you have any questions for our panel and you haven't already submitted them, you can do so now using the Q&A tool in the right-hand side of the console, and you can continue to add questions for the remainder of the webinar. So we've received a number of questions so far, so let's get started. Um, firstly, um, we'll throw this question out to the whole panel. Um, one of our viewers asks, can you touch on patient communications? What are some common misconceptions you hear, or what are the limitations to patient participation? I don't know if Janice or James, you might have some comment on this question here. I think one of the um, problems that some families uh, feel might be might affect them is that uh, if they um, if a patient chooses to um, enrol as a brain donor, that this might affect. Um, uh, things in relation to the family following the death, for example, that it might delay the funeral. Um, and we are always uh, keen to reassure uh, people that, that that wouldn't be the case. 
Um, so that's one thing, one question that comes up uh, for us. Uh, James, you you perhaps uh, speak to families as well about these things. Yeah, no, thank you. I was going to uh, raise exactly the same, and I think that certainly kind of the donation rate that follows through for the brain banking program that I'm most familiar with is about 90 percent, um, which is which is fairly good. Um, I think missed donations come about um, often because of the time of, uh, of the day or the week when donations come up, but, but when it's not for those reasons, I think it's really about um, understanding of the family wishes and, and versus the versus the donor wishes kind of thing. So so as much as, as possible to having uh, the wishes to be a brain donated uh, the brain to be donated to research in advance, um, then then that's going to really help that. Um, I mean we certainly again within the program we we're familiar with um, we have a, a strong participant panel actually that's been developed and so um, public and patient involvement is involved throughout the governance of our of, of our brain banking initiatives, and each of the brain banks that we have has uh, local lay representation. So the decisions about brain banking and kind of the processes of it um, get that input from an early from an early stage in, in, in helping to shape the way that uh, communications are made. And I think that's been something that uh, we have. It's been very effective in terms of good relations um, with uh, potential donors and their families. Thank you very much. And just to follow on from that, another one of our um, viewers has um, asked about uh, disfigurement as an issue that families raise, um, perhaps if they might uh, be looking for an open casket ceremony. Is this something that either of you has had experience of as a concern from families? This is sometimes a concern, and we are able to reassure families that uh, that open casket um, viewings are perfectly feasible following brain donation. So um, once the once the body has been prepared, this really is not a problem. And I think that all of our families find that that uh, this is the case, and and there is no problem here. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Sir Janice. Um, and I think that is just about all we've got time for today. Um, so if you do have any other questions, please do feel free to send them to webinars at neurocentral.com. Uh, and so I'd like to once again thank our wonderful panellists, Janice Holton, Tamas Rivers, Rosa Sancho and James Pickett as well as our listeners for their time and insightful questions. If you have a minute, we would be grateful if the audience members could complete our feedback survey, which you can find in the resource section of the screen. And remember, you'll also be able to shortly find a recording of this webinar available to view on demand on NeuroCentral at www.neuro-central.com forward slash webinars. So thank you again, everyone, and goodbye.